Hello and welcome to another episode of the Three View Mirror podcast, a podcast where three former strangers get together and revisit the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s through three different topics every week. And those topics are known only to the host of that week's episode. The other two are as in the dark as you are as you're listening throughout the episode. But the cool thing about this podcast is every week there's also a mystery, a hidden connection between those three different topics that, again, is only known at the beginning at least to the host and this week i get to play host i'm john catrides better known as gen x jano and i'm joined by two former strangers that now have become amazing friends shell and chris i'm rochelle o'black better known as gen x shell chris clues better known as chris clues so guys this is the three view mirror podcast So are you excited? I've got uh, the hosting challenge today, and I think I've got something that's going to stump both of you. This is one of those those episodes where you and everyone listening is going to be like, I think I know it, possibly. Maybe they could connect one and three or two and three or one and two. But the odds of you guys putting all three together are, are the same odds as Chris going back to back on, on guessing. It's, it's going to be impossible. I don't see Chris doing no. a two-peat on this one, but we'll see. I'm doing so, it. You're doing it? All right. Challenge accepted, my friend. Our three topics do run through the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s today. And they are the TV show One Day at a Time, Michael Jackson, and the 1990s movie Twister. And given the weather I've had here locally in the Carolinas, <laughs> Twister's a perfect fit. If we do go black for any reason, it's because my power went out because we have massive winds here today. But there you go. One day at a time, Michael Jackson and Twister. What do you guys think? First first thoughts. My first thought in One Day at a Time, I absolutely loved that show. I loved Schneider. <laughs> Schneider was my one of my favorite characters on that show. <laughs> Chris, you familiar yeah, with all three? Time, I, I am. One Day at a Time is one that I haven't watched, obviously, in a long time. But I, it's interesting because of all, when we talk about, you talk about sitcoms, it's just not one that comes up very often and it was a great one. But yeah, I'm excited, especially Michael Jackson. Are you kidding me? We could do a whole episode on that. So one oh day God. at a time, yeah. played through the 70s and like so many of the shows in the 70s, it showed like a new version of the family, right? There, there was a single mom with her two daughters. There was no husband or father that we saw that I can remember. They struggled financially. They were living in what could only really be described as the projects, um, like Good Times, like What's Happening. Um, like so many shows, they, they kind of were a mirror against what society looked like in the 70s, which was a struggle financially. And it was also a breakout sitcom for a lot of the cast members. I mean, Valerie Bertinelli. Bonnie Franklin had a career before but continued to be hot. And Mackenzie Phillips. But for me, like like I said, the 70s was such an era of TV that was different from the 80s that followed it and from the 60s that preceded it. The 60s, you had the nuclear family. You had the leave it to beaverness, the perfect family unit where dad would come home, honey, I'm home. The mom is dressed to the nines. She's got on this beautiful dress with a frilly apron. The, 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 the 80s came along and it was Dynasty in Dallas and everyone had money. And in between, it was like this time in the 70s where it was... Not the same. Gritty. Gritty. Good gritty. word. It was gritty. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. It, Roseanne did the same thing, I would say, in the 80s then, too. It was, you know, showing a nuclear family that was, you know, they were still a nuclear family, though, I will have to say, but a family that was basically broke and, and had nothing. Yeah, that's interesting you talk about the 70s. Gritty is like the perfect word. There was so much, I mean, Gritty was throughout television. I was just talking about that today with somebody. We were talking about um, the the cop, the, the, the cop movies and the, uh, the movies, criminal movies, mafia movies, whatever. They were all so gritty in the seventies and eighties. It's what gave them like very much a real feel, real feeling, just like these sitcoms. You could relate, I think so much more because things were changing and families were different. And we kids could turn on the TV and say, I see me, I see my family in this show. It wasn't perfect. Even the feel of the 70s shows, my wife uses the word dirty. She's like, just the aesthetic, the visual feel of it was darker. It, the, it, even though it was in black and white or in technicolor, the earlier things were a cleaner look on the screen. The 80s absolutely had a more vibrant, and I'm talking about the look of the filming, just the actual, when you turned on a TV, even today, if you go look at a show from the 70s, it has this aesthetic, this look this darker, dirtier look. Like my wife goes mash. She goes, it was always, it just felt so dirty, not in the nasty sort of way, but literally cleanliness. It just looked dirty. One day at a time was the same way. It just was that aesthetic that was different. And yet fashion took off from this show. Valerie Bertinelli absolutely like inspired a lot of girls. Yeah. And the, the bell bottoms, I can remember seeing, you know, bell bottoms were big in the seventies, of course, but I remember watching Mackenzie Phillips and Valerie Bertinelli with their bell bottoms on. And I can picture the beginning of the show, the, the song coming on and, and the whole bit. And they're like dancing around that living room and everything was for all intents and purposes. It was orange, you know, orange. If I had to pick a color of the seventies, it was going to be either harvest gold, <laughs> avocado green, or that beautiful burnt orange. And yeah. that whole entire show had those sort of main colors throughout. Burnt Orange reminds me of the Crayola 64 crown set. I don't know why, but that was one of the one of the colors in the 64 Crayola set, Burnt Orange. Or burnt I wouldn't know. I got sent to school with the eight count, Chris. You know, we didn't all have the privilege that apparently you grew up with. It didn't have the building so sharpener, much. I bet, either. So much privilege. But I remember having a huge crush on Valerie Bertinelli, and it was that look with her long, straight, dark hair. And, you know, Mackenzie Phillips had a different look, and her hair was shorter, but they're both really pretty. And I just remember at different times, I, I think I might have even had a Valerie Bertinelli, like, like a, a poster that wasn't allowed to put them on my wall, but it might have shared space on the back of my door for a little bit um, where my mother would allow such things. I remember they lived in tele in uh, magazines like Teen Beat or Tiger Beat or, you know, they had those magazines and those, those, those were the people they put in those magazines for those of us that read those. I didn't read those. Well, I think about sure. the hair too. Like you were talking about the long hair with Valerie Bertinelli, but uh, it's so distinctive that Bonnie Franklin's hair, she had that red classic Adam West bowl cut that was so typical of that late 70s, early 80s, you know, heading in. It was like her bowl cut headed into the Dorothy Hamill. So there was like some iconic hair experiences in there going from that to the 80s. Yeah, and I, I think also, like, just we've, again, going back to the idea of the not perfect family and things were changing, and you take a guy like Schneider, and 
the shows were introducing us to people who maybe prior to were, I don't want to say looked down on, but certainly like we're not going to necessarily be the representative of the person that we look to for help or support or, you know, in, in a time where we needed somebody to talk to, that was the person. But it was inter they were introducing characters like that. And Schneider was one of those characters where hopefully it changed perceptions about the guy who was the handyman that worked around your apartment complex. You know, Mr. Miyagi did that as well, of course. It was a great example of that. But Schneider really opened the door for that. And that's what makes it, I think, really great, too, about those 70s sitcoms. And he always had the pack of smokes right up there in his in his thing, all rolled up. That's that's what he did. And, and you know, it, it was iconic for him. And I think he was only like 26 when he played that role. Oh, no. No, I'm just going to go again with this thing. <laughs> he was older than 26, but I think I brought it up in the past. I think he was like 42. He was younger than we ever would have thought he was when we looked at him as a kid. And the same was probably true of Bonnie Franklin. She was probably much younger than we thought she was. Um, but she had that no-nonsense haircut. It was basically the, the point of that haircut was she was working. She was taking care of two girls. She was getting things done. It wasn't about glamour. It wasn't about looking great. I don't remember her in any episodes wearing anything other than just very basic clothing and just being that working mom that, that had to get things done. And like I said, yeah. then it flipped on its head in the 80s. And all of a sudden, huge budgets on television shows for things like salaries, for things like wardrobe, for things like location. I don't remember a single episode of One Day at a Time that wasn't in that apartment. I don't remember a single episode of Alice that wasn't her house or the diner. Good times. I don't remember a single episode that wasn't in that iconic. They can see the door. You can see the living room. You can see the kitchen. That was the set. You know, money wasn't spent on those things. And then here comes the 80s, and you've got Dallas, where they're in Moldavia for, like, the, the wedding of the, 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 the characters. And they're everywhere. And it just it makes me wonder, where did the money come from? What was that pivotal switch? Because things changed. Well, I think the 80s, you know, the 80s were a decade of indulgence for many people. I mean, that's where we get the yuppie from, you know, the young urban professional styling. And, you know, everything went from orange and avocado green to pastel pink and purple. And, you know, and we went from rough on the outside to that, you know, bedazzled, like, like, the, yeah. like the 80s were bedazzled. And yeah. the 70s were like, you know, no nonsense. The 80s were just bigger. Everything was bigger. You know, the 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 bigger, the better, they would say in, in the 80s. And Wall Street, I mean, yeah, Wall Street was a huge movie with greed is good. And so, of course, like there was that dynamic of, uh, sorry, I know where John's going, bigger is better. So don't even like throw that into one of your little shorts. Thing. <laughs> I was waiting for you to laugh at that or make a face. And you didn't. So here's the thing. It, to your point, Chris, bigger being better, flashier being better, brighter being better. But because of all of that, there's a part of my brain that when I flip across the channel and I see an episode of Welcome Back, Cotter or Taxi, uh, we don't see it much. But Freddie Prince in uh, Chico and the Man, which is a show I think a lot of people have forgotten about what's happening. I see these very simple shows and every single one that I mentioned, again, goes back to just one set. Not a lot of money spent. I would I would hazard a guess that their salaries were not anywhere near extravagant. That everything was simple and basic. 
And I love the simplicity of it. And I look at this show one day at a time about a mom and her two daughters and this creepy guy that in any show today, you'd be like, don't let him into the house with just the girls alone. <laughs> and yet it showed him to be more than than what his character would look like on the surface, to your point, Chris. There's a lot of episodes where he takes the role of being the person to listen, to be that shoulder that Bonnie Franklin will confide in. Cause she doesn't, there's nobody else around. You know, and it's just a show that I think pioneered a certain plot line, a plot device a that's been carried through over and over and over again since, but didn't exist before. One Day at a Time really is, in my mind, that first show where you have three female leads and they're running the entire show. And yeah, it was a sitcom, but they battled some very serious topics. And as the show said, they literally were taking things one day at a time. I never really thought about it that way, John, but that, you know, I never thought that in depth to it whenever I was younger about the title, the actual title of the show, but you're right. There, tomorrow was not guaranteed because they were that like, I guess you could say the working poor yeah. and, you know, paycheck to paycheck and one day at a time, like that's profound for me at the moment because I never really thought of it that way. I wonder too, like I started thinking about it as you were talking, John, and part of the grittiness that we were talking about and, and, you know, the kind of the, the working class shows that were coming out and I, listen, I, I, I would have to, somebody had to fact check me on fifties and sixties, but it feels like the seventies was like the era of the apartment sitcom. Yeah. And did we have that before? I feel like all the sitcoms were in the suburbs or they were in small towns like Andy Griffith, like Mayberry. But right. suddenly they were all, it was, if I think you listed a few at the beginning, right? I mean, it feels like it was like the era of the, of the apartment sitcom. It, and it was because yeah, more and more that. people, the seventies was, 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 there's a lot of different things happening sociologically in the seventies. There was an urbanization of America where, you know, certain segments of this country started living in more urban areas. And then there was what was referred to uh, at the time as white flight out to the suburbs. But that really started happening more in the late seventies, because you got to remember what was the seventies. It was huge levels of unemployment and inflation, both happening at the same time. They called that stag stagflation. It hadn't occurred before. Then you're not supposed to have those two economic factors happening at the same time, and yet they did. We had the energy crisis with the long gas lines, and depending on what number was in front of your license plate, there were days of the week you That's couldn't right. get gas. That's right. I mean, it was tough, and so our television reflected that. And yeah, the big white house with the white picket fence. A lot of those white houses with white picket fences were, were built on the backs of the GI plan and, 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 and men coming back from war in the 40s that led to the booms of the 50s and 60s. And that broke by the 70s. We have whole communities where I live that were, <clears throat> um, you know, built specifically where every house kind of looks the same. They were specifically built that way. Yep. I wonder, too, if part of it is that when you, if, if we tried to age these people that were in these sitcoms and it's called the mid seventies and that they had, if they had small children that we had for the first time in the sixties, there was a complete shift in the way that people approached life, family, married life, or not getting married. Uh, all of those things happened there in the late sixties. And then you have this big push of sitcoms again, kind of we're talking about in the mid seventies, where are these those people who were in their early 20s in the 
late sixties who are now late twenties, early thirties, you know, they're, if they age them a little bit in the mid seventies and actually living from what they learned or what they lived through in the late sixties and now applying that to their lives. I mean, I'm maybe going too deep there. Like I always do, but that's kind of what it feels like a little bit. So I, 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 if I'm, I have no idea what you just said, really. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I I think I did. There was the upheaval of, you know, the late sixties and the early seventies brought us the flower power generation and the flower power generation didn't, they threw out those societal norms a little bit. And when they started, um, when the energy crisis and the Vietnam war and everything was, was in its full swing, um, their, their ideals, even if you weren't part of the hippie culture started bleeding out into, you know, this is a simpler way of life. This is, this is just, you know, and I'm happy this way. And maybe like Bonnie Franklin and one day at a time, they were happy that way. They were poor, but happy. And I like that. Or maybe they weren't, but it was real. Maybe they weren't. You know, mm-hmm. and I think that's the biggest shift we talked about in the past. I think, Shell, you brought it up once in an episode. We're in the Brady Bunch, which was only a few years before this. In the Brady mm-hmm. Bunch, Mrs. Brady wasn't allowed to reveal the fact that she was divorced. Mm-hmm. They hid that, that, that from the script. They pulled it. And yet here you are just a handful of years later. And Bonnie Franklin, I, I'm pretty sure she's divorced. Maybe it was the death of a husband. But regardless, divorce was no, no longer something to hide. They mm-hmm. talked about drug abuse. They talked about alcohol. Mackenzie Phillips struggled with abuse her entire life. And there were episodes where they, they either intentionally understanding that or just coincidentally, you know, brought that into the episode. Just such a fundamental shift from you say they, they might have been happy. They might not have been. But whether they were happy or not, they were real. In mm-hmm. the 50s and 60s, whether they were happy or not. They sure as hell better damn well look happy because you weren't allowed not to look like a happy family on television in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Weren't you a little hard on the beef? You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, no comment. You've it's had that one in your comment. pocket for a while. So. No, it was, it's, a, it's a, I mean, I, I, I really, um, I'm, I have this like such, uh, I mean, you guys do this to me every single time. I, I have I'm, all of this stuff is like just flowing back to me now thinking about one day at a time and that time in my life as a little kid. And I'm like right back in my family's family room with the, with the exact color scheme that Shell mentioned earlier. And I can see it, man. I can smell it. I can see it. I can see myself and fr- sitting Indian style in front of the TV with one day at a time and these other sitcoms coming on. This is why I love the show so much because I just, there, at least once an episode, it just all floods into me and I get it. I feel it. I mean, for me, that's the idea. That's why I love Rochelle is to be credited. If I could credit her every episode for coming up with this concept, I would, and I will. And I think it works really best for me when the, when the topics take us from the seventies into the eighties, into the nineties, because it allows me to relive three decades for us Gen Xers that for a lot of us were the most formative times in our lives. It took us from birth to young adult through those years. Um, And I guess this is as good a time as any, I mean, to leave the seventies and, you know, somebody that, that took us on the journey from the seventies to the eighties was Michael Jackson. My second topic 
took us from watching the Jackson Five sitting crisscross applesauce, Indian style, on our shag rugs, that orange, burnt orange shag rug, um, watching the Magnavox, the Zenith, the RCA, whatever it was, Rabbit Ear TV. Um, and then just when we thought like him and Janet and the Jackson Five couldn't get any bigger, the 80s come along and he just explodes. He goes mm-hmm. from being a part of this amazing group to being the literal king of pop. The king of pop. And, and you know, I was going to say something about this. You know, our, our concept for the show here is that there are the Michael Jacksons of the show, which most nobody could not doesn't know who he is. And then there's the tiny little things like one day at a time where you forgot maybe about that show or forgot the effects that that show had on you. And I love being able to bring up both the big things and the little things. I thought when you said there was the Michael Jacksons and the little things, I thought you were going to say like Tito and Jermaine or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Who? Uh, so, I mean, Michael Jackson for me, like I, I just, when we talk about icons uh, and not just for the eighties, not just for even the 20th century, but literally for world history, um, what he did uh, and what he accomplished in the pop culture realm and the things that he, I don't know if you've ever seen the video of him doing the moonwalk for the first time and the crowd just goes insane. Like nobody had ever seen anything like that before. It's um, funny that you bring that's... it up as a question, Chris, about seeing the video because I, we've all seen the video, but I remember sitting watching, it was a Motown 25th anniversary special that he did that. And I remember seeing it live. I remember the moment it happened. It wasn't about a video. It was being this little kid and then me and my brothers all running to the linoleum that was on the kitchen floor to see if we could replicate it. Yeah. And we couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. You had to put socks on and try to get on the, like, the slickest floor possible just to try to pull it off. And what's cool about Michael Jackson, too, are some of the things that he did that, you know, for example, one of my favorite one-hit wonders from the 80s is Rockwell. I always feel like somebody's watching me and there's oh, Michael Jackson in the background of that song. And there, I don't, I can't remember the entire story, but there is a cool story to how he ended up being in the background of that song. But, you know, there's some really cool little things about him beyond just obviously what we know, Billie Jean thriller beat it on and on and on and on. Michael Jackson though, talk about an icon. Not only did he influence music, many artists to come, um, I, we were just talking about the Jackson Five with you know Christmas songs. Uh, you know, it, 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 they, he has music spanning generations, and he influenced clothing. Everybody wanted the red zipper jacket. Everybody wanted the single glove. Everybody wanted the flood. You know, the penny loafers and, yeah, and the, the sparkly socks. So he was he was influencing more than just music at the time. He was a pop culture icon. And there's certain stars that whether they do it consciously, like I think Madonna did this consciously where she would reinvent herself. She never got stale. Her image would change from the material girl. Uh, You know, she would do where she emulated the Marilyn Monroe look where she had the, when she first started, it was the lace glove. Her look changed her music changed regularly so she jackson did the same thing and and it you know maybe not necessarily as consciously maybe it was just more of his actual changing through his life but it never got old his music changed his genre changed his talent kept evolving over time um 
And sometimes I liked what he was doing, and sometimes I liked it a little less. Um, I can't always say that I wanted to hear every song Michael Jackson put out, but someone always did. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't go past Thriller. We we all wanted to learn how to do the Thriller dance. We were talking about this on a previous episode. You couldn't wait for the full version of Thriller to come on MTV so that you could get the full dance so you could try to do the little zombie dance at the end. His videos, uh, Billie Jean, walking across the lit up sidewalk there. It's just absolutely iconic. And yet, in some ways, I feel absolutely bad for Michael Jackson because he was a victim of his own fame in so many ways. I... I actually, you know, there's so much information out there about Michael Jackson, good and bad about his life and everything that had occurred in it. Uh, he probably, we none of us will ever really know the truth of anything, but he was too famous. He, he almost was too big. So, uh, yeah, and I agree. And I, 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 when you were talking about the songs, another thing about him that, and again, I don't know, I do know that there have been some musicians that have turned down Weird Al. And you would think that Michael Jackson in the place that he was as an artist may have turned him down, but he didn't. He embraced Eat It, which was such a ridiculous <laughs> song. And it was, it was a playoff of one of his most popular songs of all time, but he embraced it. And I think that's cool too. Even if he got you know a check on the side, whatever, the fact that he allowed Weird Al to parody one of his songs says something about him being this incredible artist, but also recognizing that there was some fun in it as well. And allowing that to be fun was, was pretty cool. When I think of Michael Jackson, a couple things. First of all, there's so many things to Shell's point. The lit sidewalk in uh, Billie Jean. The Jackson 5 record that was on the back of my cereal box when I was a little kid that I was able to cut out and actually play on the record player. Um, him doing the American Music Awards uh, and being introducing the next nominees with Donnie, Donnie Osmond and seeing them both as these young kids. Um, it was just so cool. There's so many of my memories. And then you take that to what else Rochelle said. And Rochelle, I'm glad you brought it up. So I wasn't sure you did it really eloquently because we use the word problematic today and it comes up mm-hmm. in our show all the time. I'm not sure today Michael Jackson would have survived the possible cancellation. And I'm not sure he should have because we don't know the truth of everything that happened. But there's one weird thing that no matter what anybody watching thinks of him, we used to do this thing, this understanding that the talent was separate from the artist. And no matter what you think of the artist, the talent has value, has something worth saving. And I I, I guess part of me is glad that we lived in a time where at least the talent got to survive. Because I think it inspired so many musicians after him. So many people that have amazing talent that have given so much to this world in terms of music were inspired by Michael Jackson's music. And regardless of him as a person, I don't know the truth. I don't think any of us will ever know the truth. And without knowing the truth, I don't think anybody is worthy of being canceled. So I guess I'm glad it happened then and not now, if that makes any sense. It it does make sense. I mean, um, I had this discussion with somebody one other time, and you can cut this if you want to, John, but the um, Bill Cosby, you know, and we have proof of the things that Bill Cosby had done, but 
you know, a lot, you go backwards and Bill Cosby was a very talented person. Did he squander that talent? He sure did. He wasted it, but, um, he was, you know, incredibly talented and, and, you know, fat Albert Cosby show his comedic stuff. Um, you know, and he threw it away, but, but we don't need to throw it away literally. Mm -hmm. And I think, and, and I love that you make that point. I would, the injustices of Bill Cosby aside, it would also be unjust to lose picture pages on Captain Kangaroo because it had value in my young life. To lose mm-hmm. the Cosby show, to to lose Fat Albert, that would be two injustices carried out mm-hmm. instead of just the one. Yeah. What was your favorite, uh, what was your, did you have a favorite Michael Jackson song? It's so hard, but did you have one that just like jumps out of you like every time it's on, you're like, yes. Yes, I do. I do too. What's yours? I think Shells is probably Billie Jean because she's brought it up a bunch of times. No, no. I absolutely adored Black or White. I loved the video. I I loved everything. I loved that was the first time I'd seen some sort of a technology to meld faces together when they would turn in the video. I love that song. So I actually think it was the first time they'd used that. That was Mm -hmm. like a breakthrough. That was like a Haas moment with the animation. Black and white was the first time they used that morphing technology. And I think I remember hearing it was the same morphing technology that allowed for Terminator 2 later on or around that time. Mm-hmm. It was very similar technology. Chris? Uh, what was your favorite, John? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, for me, believe it or not, I was going to say black or white because I really liked that song too. But then I remembered that he had a part to play in the song We Are the World. I think he co-wrote that. So because of that, that trumps it for me because that moment in time where him and Lionel Richie and Quincy Jones and everybody else that was involved in the production of that song, it went beyond the cause. They were You had such a need at that time and that song provided so much charity to a part of the world that needed it and yet the song even grew, it, it grew bigger than its cause. I mm-hmm. see that song played out. I just did a video encompassing that song recently. I... I, I I need a moment in time like that to happen today just to see so many artists. You had Kenny Rogers sitting next to Michael Jackson, sitting next to Bruce Springsteen, sitting next to, 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 to they were, it didn't matter what their genre was. They came together and that, I just, that, that's my favorite. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I got to hand it to you. That is a great song. And today they probably all film it from their own place and then they just put them together instead of actually being in the same studio. We um, are the Zoom world. Yeah. Yeah. So my mine would be, I mean, look, I, it's, it's cliche to say that, I mean, I absolutely love Thriller and everything about it. And I think anytime that song is on, I just think about how, to me, like Thriller is, it's, it's, it's more than a song. It's, it's, it's a composition and it's really, it's, when you really listen to it, it's something, it's something else. That long version that just keeps going is kind of like, what's the song by Queen? Um, Galileo, Galileo. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes. Yeah. It's like Michael Jackson's Bohemian Rhapsody. It just has all these different pieces. But if I were to say like, what's my favorite song? It's want to be starting something. I just, I don't know. That song just gets me like, it puts me in a good mood every time I hear it. And his video. I don't know another artist that at the time turned his music videos into mini movies. And he did it either first 
or best. He did it with black and white. I think it was black and white that had like the Egyptian scene where he falls into dust in the beginning. And I mean, but that was like an eight minute music video. Thriller went on forever. He had the money to spend and he spent it on these videos. And to Shell's point that she made today and other times, we wanted to see the full thing, but MTV would only play them in full once or twice. And then they would show the shorter version. And, you know, those, maybe his ability to, maybe his popularity also came from the idea of filming those mini movies because he was around for the beginning of MTV. And MTV, of course, gave us that visual to the music that we never had before. And so now that he made these little mini movies, he was bound to be iconic. Yeah, I, mine was, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Mine was Billie Jean, Smooth Criminal. I mean, I, I, I don't know. It's hard for me to choose a video. I, I think, um, and I will say about Smooth Criminal, as I always say, I really don't like remakes of songs or movies from the 80s, but Alien Ant Farm did a remake of Smooth Criminal, and it's pretty good. So I like it is it. good. Yeah. I, I will have to agree. And isn't Smooth Criminal, you know, we talked about the moonwalk, but isn't Smooth Criminal the other one where he did the extreme lean? Lean. And mm, yeah. when he did the Dream oh, lean there. Right. That was also iconic. Yeah. yeah, you you wanted to learn how you know it was like his second move that you saw besides his you know arm. You know he had leg kicks and things. His but, dancing but was mm-hmm. above and beyond anything mm-hmm. we'd seen before. That Michael Jackson had moves um, yeah. that nobody had shown us before, and then Janet took that on the on on tour too. Mm-hmm. It was the entire Jackson because yeah. I mean. Her with her control tour and she just these not only did the videos become big, the dance productions in these videos that they then duplicated on stage was, again, just something that we hadn't seen before then. Uh We did a little bit. Motown did a little bit of that. But this really brought it out to everybody. Mm Yeah. Um, I can see a ton of stuff about so Michael Jackson. I'm, I'm yeah, censoring myself a little. Like there's the Macaulay Culkin and the weird monkey stuff. But well, there, well that, there's there, I, I, of course. I, I mean, like... you know, I don't think you could talk about Michael Jackson without mentioning some of the controversies that came in his life and some of the things that will never be privy to. They were kept well hidden secrets, whether they were true or not true. You know, well, and it's not even just the. Missed. It's not even just the negatives. When you talk about pop culture moments in time, him and Brooke Shields dating. Now, whether you believe that was a real thing, like she actually dated Michael Jackson, or you think, no, it was a stunt. Um, He married Lisa Marie Presley. Exactly. I mean, what the hell was that? Yeah. Yeah. King of rock and roll, king of pop. I mean, that was, at the time, it was a strange combination. It couldn't have been real. It couldn't have been real. Didn't he hold his baby out over like a balcony at some point yep. or something? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah and then, that, mean, and that a cape over their face blanket, because that's even what he called the kid. He called the kid blanket at the time. Yeah. Right. He was just, yeah. he was, he was a weirdo. I mean, but to, a victim of his own fame, <laughs> victim of his own talent. You, you hear about these geniuses that are just so the genius level goes high that it's just something else. I always tell my my kids talk about not being as good at something as they wish they could be. And I always tell them life is a pie chart. And when you take up a huge piece of that pie with any one thing, there's very little left for anything else. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's kind of a Michael Jackson scenario. I think his talent was so huge. His genius was so huge that there was very little left for normal. And he had to sleep in a hyperbaric chamber to make up for it. You know, do you remember that part? Yeah. Of it? yeah. I remember. Yeah. 
And then how he lost part of his nose and how his looks changed and the skin bleaching. I mean, you, you got to talk about all of those things in with bubbles, it. like bubbles. Yes. The monkey. <laughs> I remember that, you know, um, he was, he was his own. He had to be eccentric and probably he was probably like princess Diana was never able to go anywhere or do anything and ended up trapped within his own uh, world. There's, you know, we, we talk a lot about people who are talented and on this show we do. And there's a ton of talented people out there. There are very few geniuses that come along. And if we go back in history and look at the people that were truly genius, most of them, to John's point, had weird things around them or about them because they just, their brains are just, they see the world in a very different way. And, mm -hmm. um, for, as an example, I mean, Van Gogh cut off his ear. Yeah. Okay. So this was way before, you know, the, the pop culture crazes that we have today and even social media, all that stuff. He cut off his ear. Edgar Allan Poe drank himself to death, essentially. Um, when we think about geniuses and Prince, you know, Prince just was so incredibly wired all the time that he couldn't sleep, which caused him to do other things that then eventually caught up to him. It's it's a and he talked about that how his brain was always going. I just don't know if there's ever been a genius that wasn't weird. All right, to sum up where we're at so far, we talked about one day at a time, and then we moved from the '70s through the '70s into the '80s, even into the '90s with Michael Jackson. And now that we are at the '90s, I figure we can transition to some of the movies that we saw in the '90s. One of which for me was one I saw multiple times because it would not have been possible 10 years earlier and that's twister there were certain technological changes that came along in filmmaking that allowed it to be possible to bring this movie this disaster type movie that became really prevalent in the 90s the 90s brought us all these movies which showed cows flying through the air landing on vehicles <laughs> just major amounts of destruction and made it believable so that we felt we were right in the middle of the twister right along with um, mm -hmm. And I probably have seen this movie no less than probably eight or nine times, maybe 10 times. Oh, ditto. Um, ab absolutely. It, it, it absolutely amazing movie. Um, Bill Paxton, I was a huge oh. Bill Paxton fan. I thought Bill Paxton, you know, was one of my favorite movies of all time he was in was Aliens and um, Twister, probably right up there on my list as just a, a raucous good time movie that you could mm -hmm. still watch today. Yeah, when I think of Bill Paxton, the first thing that comes to mind is next thing you know, you guys will be wearing bras on your head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, from um, uh, Weird Science. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you pukes, you die. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was a huge Bill Paxton fan as too. That was actually a really, really sad day and just shocking mm -hmm. um, when he passed away. But I, I think of Bill Paxton when I think of that movie. I also think of Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, yeah. you know, and wow, what a career after that. Mm -hmm. I mean, just an absolutely brilliant, brilliant actor. Again, someone we lost way too soon. So From my hometown. These disaster movies. What's that? He's from my hometown, Rochester, New York. Oh, is he really? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely love that movie too. And I think it's really always cool to go back. We talk about going back to these movies and think and seeing the people who 
had these roles and then just blew up, just exploded onto the scene. Well, and you got to remember everybody else in the movie because there's, when you think of the movie, I think you remember, you were, some people are prone to remember the cow and the tornadoes before they remember the actual people because the special effects had a starring role. But I mean, mm-hmm. on top of Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt and Philip Seymour Hoffman, we had Jamie Gertz. We had Mm -hmm. Carrie Elwes from Princess Bride. We had Mm -hmm. Alan Ruck, who, I mean, uh, Lois Smith, maybe not so much, uh, directed by, acted by, Jake Busey was in this movie. (laughs) I mean, just big names and small names. But if you look at this character list, Zach Grenier, um, you'd recognize all the people that were in it, big parts, small parts, just a great ensemble cast. Yeah, Alan Ruck, I mean, Cameron, you know, it's just, how can you... Cameron, he keeps, I mean, that like is a theme for me. He was in Speed, we talked about, he was in Ferris Bueller, Um, he was in my Star Trek episode because he played a Star Trek captain, and now here he is again in my movie choice. It's like if there's a little theme that goes through most of my movies, it's that Cameron has a co-starring role in all of them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that is true. That's that's an interesting little one there. Uh, You know, and... When you mentioned Helen Hunt, I mean, I think arguably for me, if I get out of the 80s, one of the best movies of the last 30 years, as good as it gets, with Jack Nicholson. Oh. Yeah. Did oh, you ever yeah. see it? Yeah. It's amazing. I've seen uh, it. Great movie. Great movie. Yeah, years ago. I love movies that also take an actor that I feel one way about, that I see one way, and, and, and kind of flip it. Like Carrie Elwes was the good guy. He was the all-American blonde, good guy, good-looking guy. He was the prince, and pre- I mean, he was. And now he's he's the jerk in this movie. He's the absolute jerk, and it's just weird seeing him play the other tornado chaser that's willing to do anything to get in their way, and then he gets what he deserves um, throughout the movie. So again, a movie that gives me what we want. We've got Jamie Gertz, who is the it girl, and in this case, she's the girl we don't want. You know, she, there's nothing. She's not a bad person. She's a good person in the movie, but she stands in the way of Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt getting back together again. So I don't know about you guys, but I'm like actually rooting against her being in. I'm like, I want her out of the way. Yeah. Yeah, you wanted the love story to happen. You know, and hey, you know, there's nothing like a good love story that ends in a shed full of farm implements. <laughs> You know, um, from, you know, the F5 tornado, it, you know, that there, there's a happy ending right there. That's a great scene where they walk in and they know what's coming and they look up mm-hmm. and all these sharp things are hanging on the wall. And here comes a tornado that's going to send them flying through the air in moments. And like, we got to get out of here. Yeah. And they were, to, you, to your point, John, the, the disaster movies that were coming out around that time. And if, if I'm maybe recalling dates differently, but like Armageddon, for example, like they were just these big, fun, adventurous movies with these incredible casts that I don't know that's been replicated. I I kind of associate it like the soundtracks for movies in the eighties and the casts for the adventure movies in the nineties. They just, it was just a moment. It was a moment. It was pretty awesome. It was the summer blockbuster. Whether yeah, it was Independence good. Day, whether it was Twister, whether it was mm-hmm. Armageddon, they were these summer blockbusters that we all went to see either on a date night 
You know, these were like the date night movies that were amazing and they were fun. Even movies like Titanic, where they were able to actually show us the ship going down. I mean, these movies had been made in the past, but they left a lot to our imaginations. Jurassic Park. This was the time when technology finally allowed movie storytellers to show us the story. Um, and we look back now and some of the, 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 the animatronics or the CGI wasn't as good as we remembered it being, but we're comparing it with what's available today instead of comparing it to what we remember being available yesterday. And there's something special about that though. Now when you see a scene that is so fully CGI, you just know it is. Whereas I don't know, there was something believable about some of the animatronics and things but you know at the time I, it wouldn't have been the same if it was in fact the, the later jurassic park movies that used cgi i liked them less because they were a little less um you know the brontosaurus looked like a brontosaurus it wasn't didn't look like a big puppet it was too perfect almost it's kind of like we, yeah. we found like our goldilocks spot there that goldilocks moment with special effects where they were still having to do things on location they were still having to do real special effects where there was a, there was a team behind it that was creating something that was going to blow up or happen or whatever and then they were taking some of the special effects that were available to them and using those but now it's almost too perfect and too polished and that's again when i go back and watch twister or armageddon i think man there was there were people behind this actually creating this stuff. It wasn't people sitting in front of a computer and they had to shoot it on location, which I think we're really, really missing nowadays. And to, to be out on location, I'm sure if they did Twister today, which I heard they might be doing, they're not, you know, who knows? They may just be in a studio with a green screen and it's going to look like they're on location, but they're not. And it just doesn't feel the same. For me, the words that pop into my mind is this synthesis of technology and imagination. And it was this Goldilocks moment, as you put it, where we needed both. And it was just perfect because it took what was available technologically and incorporated our voluntary suspension of disbelief. And the two met together at a point in time that was perfect. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So that Goldilocks moment we talked about, it's very similar. Again, if you go back and you think about the, the real kind of makeup effects that they had to do as well. And so how much of a difference that actually makes in the movies back in the day versus today, you think about like an American werewolf in London and how much talent went into creating that. And the patience on the, I was reading the other day that Jim Carrey had to, he had to like spend time with a special forces, like a Navy SEAL guy and go into training for psychologically because he had to sit in the makeup chair for the Grinch for like nine or 10 hours a day. And that was like psychologically wearing on him. And, you know, today they wouldn't have to do that. And I think for, again, for when we think about Twister, there's some similar things in there where there's, they're actually there experiencing some of those special effects. And today they just, you know, it's, it's just not the same. I mean, they're, they're, they're acting like it's there, but it's not. I even like the little moments, so I, whether it was the wardrobe or the makeup or the special effects, but even the little things they put in the movie, like the um, things that they send up into the tornado, those were called Dorothy. So there was Dorothy 1, so Dorothy 2, Dorothy... And I just thought that was a really cool touch. I remember as a kid thinking that was really cool. 
um, because that was my previous association with tornadoes was the Wizard of Oz. And I'm like, okay, that, that was pretty cool. I like that. Um, I like that the technology in this movie was believable. Seeing those little balls that had the readings go up into the tornado and stuff. I could imagine that. I could understand that. Um, seeing the real-time devastation because Helen Hunt's, is it her mother? Or it's a mother figure at any rate whose home is is basically destroyed and they have to go back. So you don't only get to see, like sometimes that's what's missing in these movies. Um, you'll see these big disaster movies where the building gets blown up, but they don't see the real effect of it. They showed the real effect of it. They did the flashback in Helen Hunt's life, um, her character's life, of what tornadoes did to her family as a young kid. So this movie had the special effects, but it also had the storyline the love affair and the heart. And I, it just made it a perfect movie for me. Yeah. And they, we cared about the characters to John's point. Like we, 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 we were invested in them much more than I think we are today. And to, to some of these big disaster movies where they don't actually give you much of a backstory. They don't give you a reason to care because quite frankly, the, the, the movie's not about them. It's about the special effects. And we had that Goldilocks moment again with the characters and the special effects where we were enjoying and appreciating both. Even, you know, Die Hard being, a, you could call it a disaster movie. It's more of like a, you know, but the building explodes. Lots of things happen, but we were invested in the characters and we were invested certainly in Armageddon. I mean, wow, that, that we were really invested in the characters of Armageddon. But the same goes for Twister. Like we wanted them all to make it out. We mm -hmm. wanted all of, you know, all we were, we were in it with them. Absolutely. So, no, no, no. It, 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 I haven't cheered for people, or like you said, Jamie Gertz, I haven't cheered for someone to, you know, make it and, and beat the bad guy as much as something like in the movie Twister. That's probably why I've seen it, like John said, you know, probably a dozen times. I also like when the movie puts us into the movie, like Jenny, uh, like, like Gertz's character, that was us. You have everybody else in this movie more than ready to put themselves directly into the eye of the storm, ready mm -hmm. to be like, and she's like, you people are crazy. Like, I don't want to be doing this. What is yeah. wrong with you? Uh, Bill yeah. Paxton, his uh, aliens. He was that, he was that character in aliens where you have everybody ready to just like, we're going to do this. He's like, no man, game over. We're done. I'm finished. This sucks. Yeah. I yeah. like that because I'm like, all right, yeah. cause that's me. I'm sorry. If you somehow have a plot that involves me being inches away from a tornado, dude, no. <laughs> or alien. <laughs> or alien. Alien. Forget it. I'm like, I'm him. Game over. It's done. Hurry up. Just take me now. Game over. I love him in that movie. Uh, just his his whole and they're making fun. I'm like this little girl's been able to survive for two weeks or three weeks. Or mm -hmm. you're a trained marine, you'll be fine. But no, fuck this. I'm done. Did you put her in charge then? <laughs> I, I, no, I, I honestly, honestly I, I could quote that uh, entire movie almost the same as I could quote Christmas Vacation. I love that movie. But I love it when they put the regular person in the movie uh, side by side with with these heroic people. That just kind of brings it all together for me. Yeah, they're real people. They're they're not fake action heroes that would survive anything. You know, magically, a hundred thousand bullets coming at them and they 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 never get hit. You know, the, I don't care for those kinds of movies. I like the little bit of a disaster movie where. Um, 
yes, they survived at the end because it was a family-friendly movie, but um, there was still devastation. There, yep. there was still a little bit of devastation, and the heroes were anti—not anti-heroes, but they—they they weren't perfect heroes. They all had flaws. So, speaking of suspension of disbelief, would that pipe and his belt have survived them being in the middle of that tornado as it went over them? Like, I just remember that scene. If you remember the scene, he, like, straps them to that water pipe or whatever, yeah. and the tornado literally goes over them, and they're, like, hanging up there. And I'm just, I remember being 26, 27 years old, however old I was at the time, and being like, all right, good movie, but they'd be food for worms. There's no way in hell. Well, yeah. even if they survived the belt and the water pipe, the thing is, it, it wouldn't necessarily be the tornado that killed you. It's like it's like falling from a tall building doesn't kill you. It's the hard landing at the end, <laughs> you know. Um, and in Twister, it wouldn't be necessarily the tornado that would kill you. It would be the things inside of said tornado that were going around with it, you know, like cow. <laughs> cow. <laughs> You've never seen that on the movie, so... Talked about One Day at a Time. Talked about the King of Pop, Michael Jackson. We finished off with a 1996 blockbuster event movie that was known as Twister. Now, there is one, if not more, but definitely one hidden topic that winds itself through all three as a thread. And I was wondering if perhaps... The two of you had any thoughts on? I think I have thoughts on two of them, but not necessarily a third. Yeah, I'm having trouble fitting Michael Jackson into my theories or my connections. You can connect Michael. You can connect Twister and One Day at a Time. Mm -hmm. And Shell, what are your two? I can connect Twister and Michael Jackson. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. Let's hear it. The Wiz. I mean, oh, my twister in okay. one day at a time. Oh, the Wiz! Wow, I didn't even think about that. The Wiz. That's, yeah, yeah, that's a, good. But I can't connect one day at a time to the Wiz. I'm, I'm no, I couldn't. Like, I couldn't see that you would. Wow. <laughs> no, uh -uh, there's nothing there. I, I but I, it was. I like the connection. I had not thought of yeah. that. Um. Yeah. No, I I can't think of any. Um. That's good. I like connection. that, Chris. Yeah. yeah. My only connection was we, you kept talking about real people and real people having uh, the, the attention was on real people and real events and, and, and not this kind of fake stuff that we saw in the 60s with the families that were perfect in the 50s and the 60s and then the perfect movies today in terms of the special effects and that right. we don't have an investment in people. So I'm thinking about Schneider. And then I'm thinking about like Jamie Gertz's character in Twister and I'm thinking about people in real, real people in real situations, but then I can't tie Michael Jackson. So. Gotcha. Well, we, we, I mean, Michael could be tied there too, in a way, because he was a real person um, with a public image that was, you know, but underneath of that somewhere in there, he was a real person with real, like you said, he was weird. He had issues, you know? Um, so maybe that. So. Who was the breakout star in One Day at a Time? Valerie Bertinelli. Okay. Who was and married to? Who was married Eddie to? Van Eddie Van Halen. Eddie Van Halen. Okay. Who played? I love, I, who played guitar on a on a Michael Jackson song? Uh, who took oh, an uncredited shit. role with the guitar solo on <laughs> "Beat It"? That's right. And who? Yeah. What's that? And who is the? 
Van Halen played a song on the soundtrack of Twister called Human Being in 1996. It was the last song that Sammy Hagar actually joined Van Halen on. So Eddie Van Halen was married to Valerie Bertinelli, played an uncredited role guitar solo through Beat It, which was incredible for Michael Jackson, and was featured on the soundtrack of Twister. So our hidden connection this week is none other than Eddie Van Halen. I love it. You know, and I, 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 I kind of thought I would never have guessed the Michael Jackson part because I didn't know about that on Beat It. Um, and I wouldn't have got the soundtrack for Twister, even though. Um, but I thought maybe it would have something to do with um, Eddie Van Halen in the beginning. But then it never it never came into fruition for me. Yeah, we I talked about Eddie artists Van that were geniuses, and that was my. I was hoping I, I I played heavily on the genius when it comes to mm-hmm. guitar play. When it comes to that, Eddie Van Halen, in his own rights, was an absolute genius at his craft. And yeah. I talked about before we went on camera how for me the reveal is bigger. Well, not bigger than Michael Jackson. You don't get much bigger than Michael Jackson, but Eddie Van Halen trumps both one day at a time and Twister. Yeah, I mean, no doubt. And, and you know, I have to give credit to um, Valerie Bertinelli is still active on, like, social media yeah. and, and such. And she has some very philosophical things to say a lot of times. If anybody doesn't follow her, she really is a great uh, follow on social media. I follow her. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge Van Halen fan. I We actually had uh, a conversation... Sorry, go ahead. No, that's why I thought this was tailor-made for you, Chris. Number one, it plays to your soundtrack. You have said in every single episode the word soundtrack have come out of your mouth. You talk about how artists want to be involved in these big blockbuster movies in terms of their soundtracks. You've, I know personally that you are a big Van Halen fan. I know how you are with music. I built this around you being able to get it, but then realized that the Twister soundtrack was probably too obscure even for you. Yeah, and I mentioned Van, Eddie Van Halen at the very beginning when we were talking about One Day at a Time. It's Valerie Bernal. I was like, oh, yeah, married Eddie Van Halen. Yep. And then it's just, and then when you said Michael Jackson and I was in the video at, here at the end, I was like, okay, now I, now I know. I didn't know Twister. Um, but I, I'm a huge Van Halen fan in general. I just think you know, I was home uh, a few months ago and there was a group of us talking about the, the top 10, top 20 bands of all time. And I kept saying, Van Halen is a top 10 band of all time. And I was trying to make that argument with some people who were disagreeing with me as they were going through the list. But I, I look at the library of music and a lot of that is because of Eddie Van Halen. Now, David Lee Roth was one of the greatest frontmen of all time. I mean, when you talk about, you know, we talk about Michael Jackson, not being able to take your eyes off of him. There's no taking your eyes off of David Lee Roth in his prime. He, he, he commanded um, the stage. You know, Freddie Mercury was probably the best at it, but uh, David Lee Roth wasn't far behind. And uh, I love it. I mean, and, and MTV, we talked about Thriller with Michael Jackson, Hot for Teacher. I mean, come on, that was a video I could not wait to come on every single time. You've said it yeah. over and over again. Yeah. 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 I love it. I was I was sitting there thinking in my head, that's the first song that comes to mind whenever you say Van Halen for me is Hot for Teacher. That was a, a very iconic song. But as great as Diamond Dave was, 
Van Halen survived his departure because most of the songs were written by Eddie and his brother. So the band was named Van Halen for a reason. And yes, they had this amazing, iconic frontman. They survived his departure far better than he did. Because without their ability to put the words in his mouth, he did a lot of covers. Um, he wasn't able to survive the departure, really. And say what you want, but the quality of the songs for me stayed the same with Sammy Hagar. Um, the, the, the albums that followed, yes, I miss David Lee Roth without a doubt. But Van Halen survived that departure far better than David Lee Roth did. Agreed. I mean, you couldn't, they couldn't I, survive with Eddie Van Halen leaving. No way. They can't survive. That, and that's the interesting thing is that most bands can't survive their lead singer, but they could survive someone else. And that's a great point. They could survive their lead singer, but they would have never survived without Eddie Van Halen. No, uh, John, that is an amazing connection. Uh, Truly. This one has a seamless connection for me because sometimes you're like, you you pull out something. I'm like Sandra Bullock, what? And you pulled out something so far away from anything I might generally have known, but I, I definitely feel like this is one of those ones that was right there. And I should have known it. Chris shouldn't definitely yeah. known it, yeah. but it, it was, it it's was funny all laid that out for it. Both of you, I said at the beginning, might've been on camera, might've been off that you will probably get two and not the third. <clears throat> Excuse me. I fully assumed Chris would have known the connection between Valerie Bertinelli and Eddie Van Halen and the beat it. Uh, the fact that not only did he play the solo on it, this most people know that now. What they don't know is he changed the song. He came in to play that portion of that song as somebody that was going to be paid. It was going to be a paid collaboration. He heard the track before Michael Jackson came into the studio and said, I know how to make this song better. And he went ahead and changed it. He changed the format of the song. He rewrote a substantial part of the music on that solo and surrounding it. And he was afraid how Michael Jackson would take it. And as the story goes, when Michael Jackson came in, he thanked Eddie. He said, thank you for caring so much about my music that you didn't only do what I told you. You came in and made it better. So you had these two musical geniuses collaborating and Michael Jackson put his ego aside and Eddie was so impressed that he didn't want to take payment for doing it. Wow. That's awesome. I, see, I did not know this story at all. I really didn't. You mentioned, you know, with, with Eddie Van Halen and Michael Jackson, let's just think about that for a second because today I know that I, I'm sure there's collaborations going on, but to ask some of these superstars to share the stage or share the spotlight. I just don't see it happen as often now. And looking back at how huge Eddie Van Halen was and how huge Michael Jackson was, Eddie Van Halen would do that uncredited. And then you have huge like Run DMC and Aerosmith coming together, sharing the stage. And so much of this happened in the eighties. You had Hulk Hogan in a Rocky movie, taking a kind of a, like a sideshow part almost in that movie. But this was what, was so great about that time and even into the 90s. And I don't know, like I'm sure there's collaborations today with stars that I don't even know anymore. But I think about the big ones that I know and I don't hear them sharing the stage very often. So, you know, I Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett thing, was one, but... But it's not quiet collaboration. Your point was perfect. You said sharing the spotlight, but in the 80s, they were willing to give of their talent even if it meant not sharing the spotlight. Yeah. 
So today, yes, there are collaborations going on, but they're loud collaborations. They're, <laughs> hey, check out and see what we're doing. But the 80s, That's it true. was a quiet collaboration. And and Van Halen being the the, the least, the mo- because he didn't even take the credit. To that end, I will just uh, say the, oh, the 80s will always be, I don't know, forget it. <laughs> I was trying to connect something that failed. I couldn't agree more. Honestly, I couldn't agree more. The 80s are just the brightest part of my childhood. 70s are special for what they brought. The 90s, absolutely. But the 80s will shine like like neon. It's just, it's it's where I live. Mm-hmm. And neon's a perfect color choice for the 80s, if yeah. you really think about it. Neon parachute pants. Mm-hmm. Well, until <laughs> next time, guys, this is John Catridi saying goodbye. And I'm Rochelle. Have a great week. Chris Clues, stay rad, everybody. (laughs) 